Well, I invite you now to turn with me in the Bible to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, as we continue our series through that book of the Bible, we'll be looking at chapter 6 today. And I'll, um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll at least ask just to see, just to prompt us to think a little bit about it. Uh, ha- have any here uh, take, taken to heart and maybe put into practice my encouragement from about two months ago to, you know, on your device, maybe through your Bible app, uh, listen, maybe on your commute, maybe while you're doing a, a workout, or maybe while you're driving kids around town through the whole of Second Corinthians. I mentioned that when we started the the series at one point as a great way to kind of get a flavor. You're not going to pick up a lot of the details. That's why we're going through week to week sections of Second Corinthians. But if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, nice thing is, you know, it takes, I think, about 35 minutes to listen through it. And we're about halfway through. So if listening to something, a book of the Bible for like 35 minutes in a block seems like a long time or your commute is not that long. Chop it in half. Get to where we are. Maybe spend one day getting up to chapter 6 where we are. And maybe spend the next day listening through the end of the book. I think even though it'll be, in some sense, a a surface glance at the book, it'll probably reinforce some of the things that we've already covered, listening to where we've already covered ground. And I think it'll really help you to get a glimpse of where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. So if you hadn't got a chance to do that yet, or you've, you've never sort of done that along with a sermon series... I just want to encourage you to, to do it and see how the Lord might might meet you in that. Uh, last week, we looked at the chapter prior to this, and we saw that uh, God reminded us that we have new life in Christ and that the reality of the resurrection is not just something off and distant for us uh, after we die. It's not just something off in a heavenly reality, but that in a sense, through Jesus, heaven has has come down. Heaven has come into our lives and that we are being made anew with God's resurrection power. And so we want to look at that today. We saw that that's all by God's grace, by his mercy. But we'll see today that that mercy is intended to be a, a transformative mercy. That grace is designed to draw us to live lives that are set apart. And in particular, to, to be in this world, but not of this world. Probably familiar with that phrase. This passage today is one of those sections of Scripture where we can certainly draw that, that concept. So read along with me. I know it seems like a long section, but uh, chapter 6 is actually just 18 verses. Uh, read along with me as I read, read aloud. You all read silently. And let's, uh, let's take a look at what uh, God is calling us to here in terms of living set apart because of his grace in our lives. Starting at verse 1. It says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says... In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And then Paul's going to describe some of who he was as an example. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. 
by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And then listen to this last section. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then verse 1 of chapter 7, summarizing all this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray again together. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are challenging verses. These verses press us. And so, Lord, we pray today that they would press us toward you and they would be an invitation to us to live with newness of life set apart for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A question for us, or maybe two questions as we start today. When you hear the word holiness, what comes to mind? As you think about the word holiness, what's, what's the picture? What ideas come to your mind or what feelings or responses come to your heart or soul as you hear the word holiness? probably a variety in a group this big for us. Maybe we'll ask it this way. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to live a holy life? What would you say? Interesting question, isn't it? And if you're like me, probably not one that you necessarily wake up every morning thinking about. In fact, an interesting question, I guess, to add to, to this would be, you know, when is the last time in your life or mine that we really thought seriously at all about the idea of holiness? 
When's the last time that really was on our radar, particularly the idea of the Christian life being a pursuit, a directedness towards holiness? It's challenging to think about, isn't it, today? It's also important that we understand what we're talking about when we say holiness. I, I've used this phrase already a couple of times in this message, and that is this idea of being set apart to righteousness. So holiness kind of has two components to it. Uh, one is distinctiveness, and one is directedness. Distinctive, a distinctive way of living and being of reality of identity because of who Christ is in our life, and directedness towards a purpose towards some end. We know that the scriptures teach this in the verses we see today. So we can see that and unpack it. But just in case you're wondering, there's a bunch of other places that the Bible talks about the idea of holiness and even calls us to it. So it's not something I'm just making up today. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, simply make every effort to be holy. Again, I don't roll out of bed every morning thinking, Let's go be holy today, Chris Peters. And probably it's not the main thing on your radar either, but the Bible's inviting us probably to, to think about that. First Corinthians chapter one. So the, the previous letter that the apostle Paul wrote, we're looking at second Corinthians today. First Corinthians chapter one, verse two begins with this statement, this introduction. Paul's greeting the people in that church and he says, he calls them, he says, to those sanctified, in Christ Jesus and called to be saints or called to be holy ones. So right away, we see that one of the realities too that we've got to unpack if we're going to wrestle with this theme of holiness, it's just the next thing in our second Corinthians series. So that's, that's why we're tackling it is that through Christ and what he's done, we saw it last week in, in second Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. And, and that's what we would call, the theologians call definitive sanctification. So it takes place the moment we come into a saving relationship with Christ, whether that was when we were six days old and God regenerated our heart, or that was when we were six years old, or that's when we're 60 years old. We, we are holy in the sense that God sees us as holy. Through Jesus, because Jesus is holy. So that's a definitive reality. And then the Bible also teaches, though, this idea of progressive growth in holiness, progressive sanctification. And that's what our passage, our passage is really getting at both today, but it's inviting us to, to take seriously the opportunity, the invitation to grow in holiness. Now, when we think about growing in our relationship with God or seeking to obey God, there's probably a various reasons that uh, can and, and are biblical to motivate us. One would be just reverence for God. We recognize who God is and his greatness, and we want to reverence who, who God is. Uh, another would be, we've hopefully maybe come to realize that even though we don't like following God's directive, his commandments in, in the word, uh, they're actually good for us. When we walk in those paths, they're actually good for us. We talked about one earlier, you know, giving. And it doesn't feel good to let go of resources that we have. We trust that God's going to do something in that. That's an example of, of responding that way. Uh, maybe, you, maybe we follow God's path to avoid God's corrective hand. We see that in the Bible, too. We turn away from the Lord. Sometimes he brings his heavy hand upon us. And so those are all, you know, decent reasons. But... The one that we're 
invited to look at in depth today, and maybe the most important one, is that we ought to seek to live set-apart lives to righteousness because of the radical love that God has shown to us in Jesus. Our passage talks about it right at the beginning. The apostle Paul begins, you know, working together with him, talking about God and being ambassadors. That was the material at the end of the previous chapter. So Paul's saying, we're working together with God to try to bring you a message about Christ, just as you and I are invited to share the message of Christ with others around us. But then it goes on and says, not to receive the grace of God in vain. So the first thing we see here is that God's grace is something where where God welcomes us freely by his mercy. I found this this week. I know know Jim Freud's going to love this one for sure. Maybe he even gave me this one. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Those little memorable things. I'm not always good at remembering them, but that's one you can log away. God's riches at Christ's expense. God has shown us grace and mercy just because of his free love. And the apostle Paul says, don't, don't take that for granted. Romans 6 in the Bible is a section where the apostle Paul's been laying out for chapters and chapters all that Jesus has done for you and me that we haven't earned, that we haven't secured by anything. And in fact, we've often pushed away and shoved away. And then he says in the beginning of Romans 6, well, uh, since there's so much grace, should we just go on sinning? Since God really likes and is magnified when he shows us grace in the midst of our sin, maybe we should just do more of it. Apostle Paul says, by no means. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Titus 2, verse 11, there's another passage in the New Testament Apostle Paul says God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives. You get the picture? So we're not to take grace uh, for granted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. If you want to look in your worship guide, there's some sermon notes uh, in, in the last couple of pages of it that might help you to follow along, at least with this statement. Bonhoeffer, that German theologian that uh, was martyred in a, a Nazi prison at the end of uh, end of the war, uh, for his stance uh, against the, the regime, for his, for his Christian faith. And he says this, he says, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. On the contrast, he says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives him the only true life. And so this is what we're unpacking today as we wrestle through this main idea. Since God's grace is precious, we should live lives set apart Christ, in Christ. Let's look at these uh, first section of this passage, and we don't have much time really to to delve deeply into it, but if you look at verses 2 on down through verse 10, just take that whole block, the Apostle Paul is basically presenting himself as an example. 
And you know, elsewhere in Scripture, he readily acknowledges that he's the chief of sinners, that he's, he needs God's grace, that he struggles, he wrestles, waffles back and forth, has these things he wants to do for God, but doesn't do them. You know, all of those things. So, but, but, but here, he's, he's saying, look, there, there are some ways in my life where God is doing a transforming work. And you all have seen it in me, he says, and I want to present it to you as some sort of a example. So he's saying, I'm following Christ, follow along with me. I'm seeking to live set apart to Christ, follow along with me. Now, some of these things you and I are probably not going to hopefully have to, to live out. I mean, he, he had the beatings, verse 5 says, imprisonments, all these difficulties that he, he faced. Uh, but verse 6 starts to get into some matters. And again, when we read these verses, they're pretty convicting to me as a pastor because Paul is presenting himself as a church leader and the high calling that he has to lead, not only in, you know, being one that receives grace and recognizes his need for mercy, but who's seeking holiness. And of course, the church leadership to follow along in that path and to be an exemplar. This is challenging as you read these verses to see how Paul sought to live. But but the, the rest of you all, before you get too com- comfortable in your seat and say, yeah, go church leaders, go be the holy ones, do the thing, right? You do it and I'll go do, do my, my other thing. Uh, remember, in the biblical pattern, wherever the leadership is headed, everybody else is invited to come right along. So yeah, these are some pretty convicting and challenging verses as I read them and maybe others that are in some church leadership capacity here today, but it, it's a, it's an invitation as well to all of us to walk in God's holiness as well as God's grace. So he goes on and he says in verse six, he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God. You know, this is going to sound familiar because it sounds a lot to me like Galatians 5.22, which many of us may know is the fruit of the Spirit. It's actually some of the same kinds of words. The Apostle Paul is just saying, I'm trying, I'm seeking to live out those fruit of the Spirit in my life. And then he goes on, and it's interesting in verse 7, again, presenting himself as some sort of exemplar of this this pathway to holiness. He says in verse 7, with the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left. When Paul starts to talk about the weapons, battle, I don't know about you, but I immediately go to Ephesians chapter 6 in the Bible, which is a chapter where it talks about spiritual warfare and putting on that armor of God. Maybe you've heard those verses before. And in particular in that passage, one of the things that it says where we really do battle, do battle for living set apart to righteousness in this case, is through prayer. You know, you and I aren't going to get to this place of, even if we see and behold God's mercy and how wonderful it is to sinners like each one of us and how amazing it is that God's loved us through Christ, we aren't going to be able to maintain or significantly pursue a set-apart life to God without dependence upon Him in prayer. And I think the Apostle Paul is kind of hinting at that here. And, and, and I want you to know, I mentioned earlier in the service that our, our church leadership's getting together, and I, I guess I'm talking about that a little more today than we might usually do, but uh, we, we've made a fresh commitment. I just want you all to know as a congregation, we've made a fresh commitment this year to, to meet monthly, so our, our, our elders are meeting every other month, and our elders and deacons meeting 
uh, on, are meeting every month. The elders and deacons are meeting every other month. My point is this. We're, we're getting together. We're getting together tonight. It happens to be the night that we're meeting for this month, our, our session, our elders. And one of the things that we're really praying, because we realize it in our own lives, and we realize it for you all as a congregation, is that we realize we just have to pray. We can't work transformation in any significant way in our own lives, and we can't see transformation come into you all's lives either without prayer. And so, you know, we're going to be praying tonight that as a whole church body, we would not be just, you know, muddling along spiritually, but that we would be captivated by Christ. That we would be growing daily in our love for God and our love for our neighbor. That we'd be delighting in God's forgiveness and grace. It would be a great thing when we have that call to confession time each week. That we'd be delighting that God chooses to love people that are so messed up as all of us. That we would be hungry for every letter of God's word. That you young people here, if you're in elementary school, junior high, high school, that you wouldn't just be riding along the the coattails of your mom and dad and maybe their interest in spiritual matters, but that you'd be digging into God's word. That you'd say, when are we going to do the read scripture time tonight or in the car? We want to know God's word, mom and dad. Tell us about God's word. That we'd be coming here on Sunday morning and we wouldn't have to drag ourselves out of bed. We'd come and say, I can't wait to get together and worship the living God. To come and sing praises to him and gather with his people that we'd be growing as disciples. So these are things that I would say are part of living a life set aside, set apart to God. And we're, we're praying for that for you all. And I hope, I hope the prayer is mutual for one another. Verses 8 and 9. We don't have a lot of time to talk about. Paul continues to present himself as an example. And it is an interesting thing he says in verse 11 through 13. He kind of pauses here. You can tell he's sort of taking a breath, regrouping for a different theme. And he says, we've spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. He goes on and he says, widen your hearts. You know, to me, this is the apostle Paul saying, don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) he's he's getting ready to challenge them uh, in a fresh way with the next section in this passage to be decisive and living distinctive because of Christ. And he's saying, you know, we've had some challenges in the past is basically what he's saying. Because we know from going through 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, that they haven't always been responsive to what the Apostle Paul is saying. They haven't always gone along with it. They've even been kind of argumentative and contentious. And he's saying, you know, I'm not just here to be your chaplain, to kind of hold your hand through difficulty. Apostle Paul would love to do that, to comfort them. He said, I'm here to speak prophetically as well. I'm here to speak and challenge you with God's word. I have both of those roles. And he's saying, please... We've opened our hearts to you. That comes from the heart. You, please, open your hearts back to receive it. And I think, I think the same invitation can be given to, to all of us today. Then he shifts into this last section. We've got just a couple of minutes to cover it, but it's a really important one. And he talks in verse 14 about some things. It may sound a little confusing to begin with because we don't, we don't, 
have yokes. Most of us are, are not probably farmers where we're yoked to animals together with a wooden thing over their necks to help them uh, pull or to have them pull in tandem. So don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? Or what fellowship... Or what accord has Christ with Belial? We don't know that term either. It was a it's sort of an overarching term, it seems, for all the ways that Satan, the evil one, manifests himself. Okay, as the devil, as the serpent, as the evil one, as the accuser of the brethren. Belial is like a, a summary uh, name, perhaps, for all of those ideas. He's saying those two things don't go together. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All right, what's... What's going on here? Let me, let me see if I can unpack it in our last few minutes. What seems to be uh, happening, you can picture it, in 1 Corinthians, it appears that at least a group or maybe a chunk of the believers at that time are uh, so concerned about getting contaminated, if you will, by worldliness that they've removed themselves. They've they're not a community, they're a commune, right? Their church is not a, a workout center to get them ready to go live out in the world, to be in the world and of it. It's a holy huddle. It's a withdrawal. And the Apostle Paul tried to push on them a little bit. Remember, people were thinking about getting uh, divorced if just one person was not a believer. And the Apostle Paul says, well, actually, you should stay married if that other person wants to stay. And well, that sounds kind of crazy because you got two, one person going one direction and another. He said, well, even if they, they want to stay together, if they want to stay together and you're a believer, you stay, you stay together. He says things like that. He talks to them about eating meat offered to sacrifice to idols. And he says, yeah, I understand where that could bother your conscience, but if they happen to be selling meat at the store, so to speak, after it's been offered to idols and whatnot, it, it, it really should be something that shouldn't necessarily bother you all that much. I understand it might. If it does, you know, roll with it. But so it seems like they've been sort of too extreme. And so now we can understand what's probably happened. He challenged him on that. And it sounds like at least some of them, or again, maybe a group within the church, have, have gone kind of too far and are completely ignoring the call to be distinctive as Christians. You young people today especially feel this. If you're in, if you're in junior high, high school, even elementary school, boy, that peer pressure is a, it squeezes you, doesn't it? It's really hard to go against the grain. And the apostle Paul is reminding these believers. Now, what, what's kind of odd for us, but that'll help us to understand is, imagine if this was some sort of pagan temple, the way it would work, I, I gather from what I read, is in a pagan temple, you might invite your friends to come. And so the Peterson family invite all their friends to come to the temple, and we'd go like in a Sunday school room, and there would be maybe the animal sacrifice would be offered or brought there. We know the Corinthians were involved in all sorts of sexually illicit things in their temples, the male and female prostitutes that were there. So I don't even know, we're not even really talking about that, but I imagine there was some of that going on. And so people as believers were wrestling with, do I go to that? They've invited me to come. I'm trying to be in the world. I'm trying to build relationships. And Apostle Paul's saying, time out. <laughs> I'm glad you're not living as a holy huddle anymore, but you are supposed to be distinctive and you can't actually participate in the worship of God. You've got to be distinctive that way. Now, of course, these verses also, we would apply to the idea that, you know, especially uh, folks that are looking for a spouse, 
that we ought to be thinking uh, young people or others that are single, maybe looking for a spouse and thinking that way. We ought to be trying to find somebody that we're equally yoked with, who's also a believer, who's also walking with the Lord. But first and foremost, this is just a, a passage that's calling us to holiness, that's calling us to holiness. I like what uh, A.W. Tozer says. He says, by faith and obedience, by constant meditation on the holiness of God, by loving righteousness and hating iniquity, by a growing acquaintance with the spirit of holiness, we can acclimate ourselves to the fellowship of the saints here on earth and prepare ourselves for eternal companionship with the saints above. Maybe that's a more positive way to think about it. We're acclimating ourselves to a new reality, a new community, to living set apart for God. Well, there's a lot more that we could say about these verses, but as we come into the conclusion, let me just highlight the end of verse 16 and into verse 18, because it's sort of like Paul knows that this is hard stuff to take, to really uh, move away from the things of the world that draw us so powerfully, and to say, you know, the Ten Commandments say, I want to follow those commandments. I want to love God and love my neighbor as myself. I want to pursue God passionately in all that I do. That's a hard call for all of us. And so he reminds us, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Below that, he talks about himself being a father. And so really, folks, what this is, is an invitation. When we talk about living set apart to righteousness, we're talking about living set apart to fellowship with God, to have relationship with the living God, to be intimate with him. And he's reminding us of that even in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, okay, so in light of all these good things God wants to give to us, beloved, it's an invitation. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, Bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Well, it's tough, folks, right? It's tough to keep our eyes disciplined in a world that draws us away to all form of of, uh, lustful and sexual temptation. It's uh, tough to keep our minds and our hearts disciplined in a world that invites us to materialism and personal greed instead of generosity. It's tough to keep our a posture of love in in the mindset that we see well up in us of anger and frustration. It's tough to be patient when there's situations that test our patience. It's tough to be gracious when we want to be judgmental towards other people. Those are all things we can't do in and of ourselves. I love what Spurgeon says. I'll close with this quote. I think it's in your worship guide. He says, the heart is so hard the will so obstinate, the passions are so furious, the thoughts are so vile, the imagination so ungovernment, the desires so wild, the man feels that he has a den of wild beasts within him, which will eat him up sooner than be ruled by him. A man might as well hope to hold the north wind in the hollow of his hand as expect to control by his own strength these boisterous powers which dwell within his fallen nature. This is a greater feat than any of the fabled labors of Hercules. God is wanted here. God who cannot lie, 
Hear this promise as we close today. God who cannot lie said in Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I would add, we just read in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have a, we are a new creation. The Lord knows right well that you can't change your heart, your own heart. You cannot cleanse your own nature, but he knows that he can do both. He can cause the leopard to change his spots. Hear this and be astonished. He can create you and me a second time. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, allow us by your grace and because of your grace to live holy lives that are set apart to you for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.